This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you were a kid, did you ever pretend to be a cowboy or a cowgirl? Did you play the part of an infamous outlaw? If you did, chances are these fantasies were inspired by a lot of fiction. The Wild West, as we think of it today, was very different. In the 1950s, a whole generation fell in love with the Hollywood version of Buffalo Bill Cody. But these films weren't biopics. When it comes to movies, the more entertaining, right? And the box office responds to that. And there's no better way to do that than to embellish a few things. The real William Cody was born in 1846. When he was just eight, his father was brutally attacked. And as he watched his father dying in bed, he declared that he wished to be all grown up so that he could kill the men who attacked his father. Most historians today believe that Cody was a good storyteller. But what we do know is that as an adult during the Civil War, he was a Union scout. And then in 1866, he married Louisa Frederiki. And in 1867, he earned the nickname Buffalo Bill while hunting buffalo for the Kansas Pacific Railroad, where he bragged that he killed 48 of the animals in just 30 minutes. Cody's antics eventually caught the attention of General Philip Sheridan, who wanted a positive public relations spin for the U.S. Army. He joined Cody on Buffalo Hunts, and the media just couldn't get enough. Pulp Fiction magazines were already in the business of romanticizing stories about life in the West, and it didn't take long before a writer convinced Cody to take his stories on tour. Within a year, Cody created his Scouts of the Prairie show. It was such a success that he ended up traveling the country with it for the better part of a decade. By 1883, though, the show had evolved to something that was so large it could only be staged outdoors. Now called Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show, he hired cowboys, cowgirls, mountain men, and Mexican vaqueros. He brought in elk, bison, and even bear. And in 1885, Annie Oakley joined, impressing crowds with her shooting skills. By the time of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, roughly 650 people worked on his show. The stage was functionally 15 acres of land. 
the grandstands had room for more than 18,000 people. And at that very same exposition, historian Frederick Jackson Turner, remember him from our first episode this season, was giving a speech about life on the American frontier. To him, the preceding few decades had been more formative to American identity than any other before it. As he understood it, American settlers had experienced the frontier, and in turn, the frontier had left an indelible mark on the character of America. This is what Hollywood would eventually pick up on. Today, when we think of the Wild West, we're not thinking about the time and place as it was, but the idea as it has been formed in our imagination. But one thing's for certain, our image of the Wild West is almost always about people and their stories, which is why they're still so interesting today. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to the Wild West. Tumbleweeds, dusty trails, cowboys, and of course, outlaws. And one rugged gunslinger with his black hat and horse has always captured imaginations with his lawlessness and daring exploits. Billy the Kid is a name that we all know. Born in 1859, Billy first found trouble at just 15 years old. It seemed that he helped a man play a prank by hiding clothes from a launderer. The sheriff didn't find the joke funny and arrested Billy. Not one to be contained, Billy escaped through a jailhouse chimney. While working as a civilian teamster at the Camp Grant Army Post, Billy was bullied daily until he reached the breaking point and shot his tormentor. He was again arrested and again escaped. At this point, though, honest work was no longer an option for him, so Billy joined forces with Jesse Evans and his gang, known as The Boys. Eventually, Billy found work in 1877 with a guy named John Tunstall, protecting him and his cattle. So, when Tunstall was murdered during the Lincoln County War, Billy swore vengeance and joined the Regulators, another infamous outlaw gang. He then took on those who wronged Tunstall in a series of gunfights, earning Billy a reputation as a skilled gunslinger. Again, Billy was arrested. But in a plea deal for a pardon, he testified against others who participated in the Lincoln County War. Sadly, the district attorney didn't hold up his end of the bargain, and Billy was locked up anyway. But Billy did what Billy always did. He escaped, going on to form his own gang called the Rustlers. In late 1880, he was captured yet again and jailed again. Convicted of murder, the judge sentenced him to hang. And once again, you guessed it, he escaped. But in July of 1881, he would finally run out of chances when he was shot and killed by a sheriff. His story was dramatic, and drama always gives wings to the tales we tell. So as the stories of outlaws and their gangs spread, the line between fact and fiction started to become more and more blurry. Some of these characters are remembered as Robin Hoods, stealing from the rich and giving back to the poor. Others earned sympathy by fighting against a system that had somehow wronged them. One famous outlaw that became larger than life is, of course, Jesse James. Born on September 5th of 1847, James grew up in Clay County, Missouri, although his father Robert sadly passed away just three years later, leaving Jesse's mother Zerelda and his older brother Frank to carry on. During the Civil War, the division between pro-Union and pro-Confederate sentiments in Missouri escalated to violence. Groups of anti-Union bushwhackers, including Jesse's older brother Frank, launched brutal attacks on anti-slavery Union towns. And when Jesse turned 16, he followed in his brother's footsteps. After the Civil War, Jesse rose to lead a gang of bank and train robbers. His legend grew with each daring exploit, 
partly thanks to an ex-Confederate soldier and newspaper editor who crafted a myth of James as a heroic Southern Robin Hood, and he played the part well, maintaining a respectable public image. The gang's luck changed, however, when they attempted to rob the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. This time, the townsfolk fought back, killing two gang members and kicking off a search for the rest. Jesse and his brother Frank barely escaped and ended up moving to Tennessee under false identities. But death comes for us all, doesn't it? And legendary outlaws are no exception. In 1882, while Jesse was dusting a picture on the wall, he was shot in the back of the head. And so ended the colorful life of one of America's most rugged Wild West sweethearts. By the late 1800s, the 30-year period of the Wild West was coming to an end. The 1890 census showed that the once clear frontier line that divided the settled areas from the wild ones had become too blurry. The wild part of the Wild West, at least according to the U.S. government, had been tamed. You could see it everywhere you went, too. Streets had been laid, and the foundations for public projects had been created. Jails, schoolhouses, and businesses began dotting the landscape in a tidy fashion. Americans were becoming less interested in expanding outward and more drawn to growing roots. The Wild West was shrinking, but it hadn't failed to sunset just yet. That's where Elmer enters the picture. He was born up in Maine in 1880 to a teenage girl named Sadie, and as you might expect, his early life was full of hardship. So Elmer was raised by his aunt and uncle, Helen and George, and his parentage was kept a secret from him to shield Sadie from embarrassment. However, after his uncle George died in 1890, Elmer discovered the truth. According to some, it was that that left him feeling betrayed, driving him to become rebellious as a teen. His grandfather found him an apprenticeship as a plumber, but just as life was looking up, a recession struck in 1898. His aunt Helen and mother Sadie both lost their jobs, and then in August of 1900, his mother passed away. That was when Elmer decided to head west for a fresh start. Little did he know that his journey would lead him down a path with other Wild West legends in the most unusual of ways. It began with a daring leap onto a freight train. Every moment on those rattling trains was a dance with fate, avoiding the prying eyes of company detectives. But after days of heart-pounding travel, he arrived in Niola, Kansas in 1903. This bustling town was at the heart of an industrial boom. The town had 17 miles of paved roads, indoor plumbing, electricity, and a public library. Upon arriving, Elmer adopted the alias of Frank Curtis and took up a plumbing job at the Eagle Cornice Works and Plumbing Shop. He worked hard, too, often 10- or 12-hour shifts, just to meet the demand of the growing town. He even joined the volunteer fire department, always ready to battle the flames and earn a few bucks for his bravery. Embracing the spirit of community, he became a member of the local trade union and attended town meetings, taking part in shaping the town's future. The local newspaper sang his praises, calling him an industrious young man, rubbing shoulders with the town's elite, and even catching the eye of a merchant's daughter. It seemed Elmer had finally found a place to call home. One fateful night, however, under the influence of alcohol, he spilled the truth about his alias and a supposed barroom murder. Whether or not it was a tall tale fueled by booze remains a mystery, but whatever the case, William Root, his boss, couldn't take the risk and unceremoniously fired him, leaving Elmer feeling betrayed once again. Seeking new horizons, he left the town he loved and headed to Missouri, where he worked in the dangerous depths of a zinc mine. From there, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, where he excelled as part of a machine gun detachment. 
When that military journey came to an end, he was honorably discharged with praises for his excellent and faithful service. Armed with those discharge papers, he set his sights on St. Joseph, Missouri. Unfortunately, luck wasn't on his side, and after just a week of job hunting, he found himself penniless. In his desperation, Elmer turned to a former army buddy named Walter Shoppelry. Walter took a week's leave and rushed to his friend's aid. Almost immediately, three police officers arrived and arrested the pair, accusing them of possessing burglary tools. Headlines about the sensational arrest were splashed all over the local newspapers. The officers claimed that they had confiscated not just tools used by burglars, but also a device for pulling safe combinations and a funnel used for nitroglycerin. Elmer and Walter faced serious charges, but Elmer decided to put his army inventiveness to use. He spun a story that the tools were part of a new machine gun tripod, and the supposed nitroglycerin funnel was just a funnel that he had made for Walter. The trial was intense, but Elmer demonstrated his tripod invention in front of the court, convincing the jury to return a not guilty verdict. It wouldn't be his last encounter with crime, though. After meeting the notorious Walter Jarrett in St. Joseph's Jail, Elmer was lured into the world of outlaws and bank robbers for good. Jarrett's fascination with the outlaw Jesse James only fueled their ambitions. With their sights set on robbing the Iron Mountain train, Elmer, Jarrett, and the rest of their gang planned to make history. But the heist quickly turned into a chaotic mess. The safe was harder to crack than they anticipated, and their inept use of explosives caused most of the silver inside to melt and fuse to the walls of the safe. Despite their failed attempt, word of their crime spread like wildfire. Undeterred, the gang set their sights on a new target, a bank in Chautauqua, Oklahoma. But their plan to tunnel through the brick wall and blast the vault door also backfired spectacularly. No pun intended, I swear. The explosion they set off ended up wrecking the bank, and they barely managed to steal a few hundred dollars. Unwilling to give up, they plotted their next move, robbing a train that carried royalty payments to the Osage Nation. But instead, they mistakenly robbed a local passenger train, netting them a mere $40 in cash, plus a pocket watch, one coat, and roughly two gallons of whiskey. Despite their lack of success, though, law enforcement was hot on their trail, determined to bring these wannabe outlaws to justice. They used bloodhounds to track them down. At first, the manhunt looked promising as the dogs picked up the outlaws' trail into the nearby woods. But heavy rains began to fall, washing away footprints and the scent. The media dubbed the gang the Bartlesville Posse and reported on their ambitious plans, describing the explosives and fuses that they found near the crime scene. And alcohol would once again play into Elmer's downfall. In the following days, he hid out at a local ranch, where he indulged in stolen whiskey while bragging to a ranch hand that he had come from a train that had been held up. Eventually, Elmer passed out. But the lesson here for everyone at home is pretty clear. Don't get drunk if you've got a crime to hide, right? As dawn broke the next day on October 7th of 1911, the authorities caught up with Elmer. The men took up stations outside the barn where he was sleeping off the whiskey in a bed of hay. Around 7 a.m., the men surprised Elmer as he stumbled out of the barn, perhaps still a bit drunk from the night before. Caught off guard, he fired wildly at them and then ran back inside the barn. Elmer and the men exchanged gunfire for nearly an hour, but at some point they realized that he was no longer firing back. So they convinced a brave ranch hand to go inside and check on the situation. 
which is how they found Elmer dead on the floor, his body riddled with bullet holes. Now, I need to be honest here that the circumstances surrounding his final days are shrouded in a bit of uncertainty. Reports on the events before the shootout at the barn are inconsistent and contradictory, leaving the truth behind his death forever unknown. Some have suggested that the shootout never even occurred and that Elmer wasn't present when the train was robbed. Instead, they wonder if the posse just happened to come across Elmer sleeping off whiskey in the barn and shot him by mistake. A few have even suggested that one of his own gang was the one who killed him. Whatever happened, though, Elmer's end was just the beginning. While his life as an outlaw may have paled in comparison to Jesse James or Billy the Kid, what set him apart was what came next. It began with the embalming process at the Johnson Funeral Home in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. His body was treated with arsenic, turning it into an unexpectedly well-preserved corpse. But with no one coming forward to claim the body, the undertaker came up with an idea. He dressed McCurdy's body in bandit attire, armed it with a rifle, and then put it on display, charging visitors to view the macabre exhibit. You see, back then, laws related to corpses were a lot more lenient, and displays like this were not uncommon. Several years went by until some carnival owners approached the undertaker, eager to purchase Elmer's body. He refused, so they concocted a story posing as the dead outlaw's relatives and tricked the undertaker into handing over the corpse. After that, Elmer's well-preserved remains were featured in various carnivals and sideshows all over. Then, in 1922, a guy named Louis Sonny, the head of an entertainment company, acquired the body and placed it in his traveling show called the Museum of Crime. After that, Elmer's corpse became a prop in a couple of movies, after which it was stored in a warehouse in Los Angeles. And at this point, most everyone had forgotten that this prop was actually a human corpse. Which is why, in the mid-1970s, Elmer's body could be found hanging from a fake gallows in the Laugh-in-the-Dark Funhouse at the New Point Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. Strange, right? But hold on, because it only gets worse. When the hit TV show The Six Million Dollar Man came to the amusement park to film an episode, the production crew mistook the corpse for a mannequin and accidentally broke its hand off, revealing real human bones inside. As you might imagine, everyone pretty much freaked out. So the police were called, and the coroner's office examined the body, finding a copper-jacketed bullet and early 1900s embalming fluid. Eventually, with the help of Oklahoma historians, they identified the remains as Elmer McCurdy, noting that his mouth was stuffed with carnival ticket stubs. And there you have it. Clearly in life, he was nowhere near as infamous or successful as other outlaws like Jesse James or Billy the Kid. But in death, his ability to stick around eclipsed all of them, quite literally. Oh, and one more thing. Billy the Kid's final resting place might be a mystery, but Elmer McCurdy's sure isn't. In the spring of 1977, someone kindly offered up a free plot in the legendary Boot Hill section of Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. It was a chance to give him a proper burial, although a pretty delayed one, to be honest. When the day finally arrived for Elmer McCurdy's final journey, it was a horse-drawn hearse that solemnly carried him toward Boot Hill. Inside, a plain pine coffin held the well-traveled body, ready to lay him to rest 66 years after his death. And the cemetery that day was filled with hundreds of people, all gathered to bid farewell to the failed outlaw, who unintentionally became a legend.
Ever since historian Frederick Jackson Turner gave his famous speech at the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, the notion of the West, at least the one that folks like Buffalo Bill Cody, Jesse James, and all the rest painted for us, has embodied the American spirit. This belief lived on from generation to generation, becoming woven into American identity. In the end, whether fact or fiction, the American frontiers myth continued to shape a nation's soul, inspiring its people to dream, explore, and believe in the power of the untamed, uncharted future ahead. As the West's physical landscape changed, the Wild West simply relocated from the wide open plains to the minds and hearts of Americans, where it remains to this very day. For many of our cowboys and outlaws, the stories that fed their folklore were deeds done in life. But Elmer McCurdy's legend was formed post-mortem, and he finally got something that he could only have dreamed of in life, a spot on Boot Hill, a famous burial ground for gunfighters who, as they say, died with their boots on. As his coffin was lowered into the earth that day, authorities poured ample amounts of concrete on top of it, ensuring that McCurdy's days of macabre travel were at an end. It seems that he had finally earned his spot alongside the outlaws of old, and a place in our imaginations. The Wild West has always been a real-life cinematic universe full of textured characters and major events. It's neat and tidy that way, but hopefully today's exploration of some of the more colorful characters helped you spot a favorite or two amongst the bunch. And if Elmer McCurdy's prop store corpse was the one that caught your fancy, you're in for a treat. We've got one more grisly tale of life after death in the Wild West to share with you. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, my teammate Ali Steed will tell you all about it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. George's good luck continued from there. When the train was stopped at Carvin County, a mob of people furious at the murder of the lawmen dragged George off the train and prepared to hang him. George pleaded for his life, and for whatever reason, the crowd let him go. Not free, mind you, they just put him back on the train so somebody else could hang him. He was tried and found guilty on December 15, 1880, and in the spring of 1881, the judge sentenced him to hang. George had no intention of being executed. In March, George attempted to escape. He succeeded in brutally subduing his jailer, but not his jailer's wife, who forced him back to his cell. Incensed over the attack on the jailer, residents stormed the jail and dragged George outside where they intended to string him up from a telephone pole. The first two attempts were gruesome failures. But as they say, third time's the charm. Can you believe that's only the beginning of our story? George's corpse wasn't exactly laid to rest. With no family to claim the body, it fell into the hands of doctors Thomas McGee and John Osborne. Curiosity at the criminal condition led them to examine his brain, but all they found was that George's brain was no different from a normal one. Dr. Osborne molded a death mask of George's face and, in a gruesome twist, removed the skin from his thighs and chest. He then sent the skin to a tannery to make a pair of shoes and a medicine bag. Yes, you heard that right. Shoes and a medicine bag made from the skin of an outlaw. After receiving his new duds, Dr. Osborne entered the political arena, becoming the first Democratic governor of Wyoming. It's said that he even wore the infamous shoes to his inaugural ball in 1893. Later, he climbed the political ladder further, becoming the assistant secretary of state under President Wilson. Meanwhile, his young assistant, Lillian Heath, held on to Big Nose George's skullcap. She went on to become the first female doctor in Wyoming, an incredible trailblazer in her own right. Big Nose George seemed lost to history until one day in 1950. Workers at a construction site found a whiskey barrel filled with human bones and a sawed-off skull in Rollins, Wyoming. The shocking discovery sparked curiosity and speculation. A crowd gathered to witness the grisly remains, and someone remembered that Lillian Heath might actually have a piece of the puzzle. Eighty years later, Lillian confirmed the match between the skull cap she had kept as an ashtray and the skull found in the barrel. DNA testing later verified the results, and the mystery was solved. These were indeed the remains of Big Nose George. Today, you can see the death mask, skull, and infamous skin shoes displayed at the Carbon County Museum in Rollins. The museum attracts visitors from far and wide, eager to get a glimpse of the Wild West's most bizarre outlaw. Outlaws might have been rough and tough characters, but in poor George's case, the vigilantes really kicked it up a notch. 
Grim and Mild Presents The Wild West was executive produced by me, Aaron Mankey, and hosted by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto, with research by Alexandra Steed, Sam Alberti, Cassandra de Alba, and Harry Marks. Fact-checking was performed by Jamie Vargas, with sensitivity reading by Stacey Parshall-Jensen. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.